Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Well, not exactly thieves, but uh, beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theater, but we didn't do just theater. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we then called para-theater. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which means we just like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and adjust their new reality, their new status quo. Yes, and now uh, in this episode, you'll really see the sticks we put in the anthill. Um, and it gets more and more clear and more and more complicated at the same time, right? Right. I mean, we're going to be talking about uh, our relationship or the Hill's relationship to media. With that, we went through the journal and uh, we discovered some evidence on one of the things we hoped this podcast would reveal to us, which is uh, how life on the Hill went from something that was very light and nice, I guess. And community and sweet, even. Right. To something a lot darker. So we also got evidence to the question we had. Well, we had put this, uh, this project, I guess, this experience, put yeah. it away in the basement for 30 years because we, were, we felt we had some culpability and we had a lot of guilt about it. Yeah, and we didn't really, really want to face it, the, the blow-by-blow of the journal and to try to figure out what went wrong. People died, and people died all the time because it was the height of the AIDS crisis. But people died violently, and especially our friend Mr. Lee, who we felt like we needed to keep an eye out for, and we didn't. Uh, It gets complicated in this way because it's media writ large that we want to talk about this time. Right. Meaning we did projects photo projects, photography, which is a medium. You had a great quote, actually. This might be a good place to put it recently that you discovered from, from Susan Sontag. Well, yeah. I've, I mean, her book on photography is, I mean, it's full of quotes, but one that always stuck with me. And um, at the time, I wasn't reading her book. But uh, her quote is, to photograph people is to violate them by seeing them as they never see themselves by having knowledge of them that they can never have. It turns people into objects that can be symbolically possessed. Just as a camera is a sublimation of the gun, to photograph someone is a subliminal murder, a soft murder, appropriate to a sad and frightened time. Which gets into a lot of things, including why I don't like the word shoot, you know, to shoot somebody. To photograph them, not to shoot them. You well, know? I mean, it's... but it's language guess, has meaning, you know? Well, according to her, it's, it, you are shooting someone. Yeah. You're, it's a slow murder. It goes to representation. In other words, who represents who? And our mission <laughs> from the Thieves Theater from the beginning was to give voice to the disenfranchised. So, but I mean... Uh, then who are we to represent that? And so we're, we're going into a shanty town as artists, and uh, we're putting up a teepee 
that is calling attention to the shantytown. We didn't think it was going to stay up there, so we really thought it was going to end in a photograph. Right. So we thought, okay, there's a photograph. Now we'll be able to talk about what a teepee in a shantytown means, and that would be the end of it. But now we have to live in this. Exactly, and what was so interesting that we discovered in unearthing this is that we decided to make a postcard very early on. Uh, I'll put it in the YouTube version of this. Uh, I did earlier, but a postcard with the image of the teepee in the shanty town on it, a black and white, and that became the, the sort of the first representation of it. But what gets complicated is that it wasn't just us, you know. In other words, the people on the hill. Uh, they also, for instance, wanted to sell the postcard. Red did. Well, the postcard, we interesting enough, we didn't get the postcard made till months after no, we were No, not till months teepee. after, but it was planned right away because right. of you, what you were saying. We weren't sure the teepee was going to stay up, so we took a bunch of photographs. Yeah, and then out of that, we were thinking, well, we'll make a postcard out of it. Right, right. yeah, yeah. So one of the things we want to do in this episode is kind of give you a timeline of the media representation on the one hand and the types of media representation and how simultaneously the hill got darker and darker because of the forces that changed it. And it's not entirely clear who's at fault Except well, there is no fault. There, I mean, no, there's no fault per se, but culpability, culpability, responsibility. Yes. And the conclusion we've come to recently, very recently, is that we should have stopped it much earlier than we did. Because even in my journal, I wrote, I don't know why I'm still up here at a certain point, right? Yeah, you did write that in there. And it's, it's true, because when it started, we could pinpoint the spot that it started to get dark when we went through the journal this time. Right. All right, but let's back up a little bit and start with the media representation. Long before, or not long, but months before, in the summer before we put up the teepee, there was an article written about the Hill. And that article got a lot wrong. They attributed for instance, the Ponderosa to the Chinese guy in the back, not to Sammy. It got a lot wrong, but it did talk about the Hill as a community and represented it in that very warm way that we talked about it initially. But it also pointed out that there was at least one Chinese real estate broker who made it his mission to see the Hill be gone, which goes a long way towards explaining why within days after we put up the teepee, Nick got arrested and they wanted to know who he was and why the ADA didn't want to let him go because he was under, the pre under pressure from the Chinese community, including people like this real estate broker. Well, the community, let's say the real estate <laughs> person. Sure. Yeah. And real estate and business right. in general. Because I what guess. that article also points out is the incredible property value that Chinatown was, the rents it was commanding at that time. 
So the real estate broker who was quoted, not wrongly, said, nobody wants to look at the hill, <laughs> you know, right. when they're trying to rent expensive uh, office space or apartments in the area. Yeah, the title of that article was, was uh, Squatter War Coming to the Hill, yeah. as if there was a war coming. As the, so, yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, right. I'm going, I keep going back to the Sontag quote where, where the, the shoot is to. Yeah. Yeah. So that was in July and we got there Thanksgiving. Four days after we got there. Right. The New York Post came out with a article. With you. Yeah. With me. We it, had talked about that one where, uh, the reporter came up to the hill looking for Nick Manhattan. And we figured out through rereading the journal that it was actually Sammy who gave him that name because right, Nick I, had told Sammy the story of the infamous $24 sale by the Indians of Manhattan to the white people. And he was loved that story and he was telling it over and over again. And when he was asked who told him that story... He said, Nick, Nick Manhattan, he made up that name. Yeah, and he very said... much like Sammy. Yeah, he also was telling everyone I was an Indian. Yes. Named Nick Manhattan. <laughs> Nick right. Manhattan. Right. It did create that picture of me sitting next to, standing next to the teepee. And that's why everybody was yelling over the bridge. But more at me. Hey, Nick, Man hey, Nick Manhattan. Nick right, Manhattan. From the cars going by. Because when the post reporter came up to the hill, he asked for, he asked whoever the teepee belonged to. And Sammy told him it belonged to Nick Manhattan. And that's how that caption came about. Right, exactly. You know? Yeah. And uh, but also with the Post article that brought all other kind of reporters in. Right. So other news outlets started coming because of that. Exactly. So this is the position we were in. The TP goes up in itself, brings a lot of attention. Uh, the Post comes. Other reporters are coming and we're not talking to them because we want to stay anonymous. We want people to wonder and guess who this teepee belongs to and why it's up well, there. Well, we're putting that in our head now because they're allowing the teepee to stay. To stay, yes. We didn't, right. Yeah, yeah, now we're dealing with the fact that it's not been torn down and it, it's being allowed to right. stay. So we're dealing with that. We're dealing with the press coming up. And you might recall from episode four, I believe it was, when we were talking about our production of Trash the City and Death, where press from all over Europe came to see that production. And it was our trial by fire of how to deal with the press. So we were uh, on guard and a little better prepared this time. And we were going to try to control it. Because the idea of all this press coming now, as well as Nick's arrest, we thought we need to control the narrative here before somebody decides what the narrative is and, and, and paints it for us. Right. Because don't forget, yes, our mission, right, to embody and articulate the voices of the disenfranchised and to let them represent themselves, which required us to stay anonymous and for people to be allowed to talk. So right. this, this was what was in our heads. Because, for instance, also on that same day that that Post article came out, Andreas... Our friend Andreas Sturzing, whom, whose picture is on the cover of my book and on the podcast logo, he asked, can I come by and take pictures? And I said, sure. And suddenly I, I said, oh, God, 
I got to call him back. I can't. I can't let him do that. I can't let me be the reason why suddenly now people are allowed to traipse in and out at will and take pictures. Our, our whole point was that, right. we, that we weren't going to allow that. And here's the other thing I want to mention, uh, because it's going to become relevant in the minute. The Hill was like a human zoo. Uh, people To photographers. To photographers. People could look at it from all sides. And the people on the Hill were used to throwing rocks at people trying to take pictures right, exactly, of them. Right, exactly. Long before we got there. Right, because they thought of it as a human zoo. Yes. I mean, they looked at it that well, way. Well, that's what they're, I meant. Right, exactly. You know, yeah. No, no, I know. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. And so you can imagine people saying, no, you can't take a picture of me here in the shanty Yes, town. I live here. Go to your own neighborhood and take pictures of people in their front yards, if you right. dare. And you know, so, that was there. <laughs> so that's another form of representation that's being stolen you know, yes. and put up the way they want. Now, the post comes in, takes a picture. I, I don't know who allowed them into the compound, but they take their photograph. They're going to represent what they want. They're going to tell whatever. And when, along with the residents who were throwing rocks, we said, okay, no, you can't come in here and take a snapshot of the situation, both as a story and a picture. And be that that be the representation right so we devised a photo project for everybody and i don't know if i want to get into that now though if i want to talk about jim lardner first first jim because yes, it, it came uh, first yeah right i was talking to gabrielle about On the payphone yeah about i think about the post article or something and jim must have been stalking me <laughs> Clearly. Because he was overhearing me on the payphone. And then he said he was from the New Yorker. And he wanted to do a story. Yes. So we thought, ah, the New Yorker. Okay. The New Yorker is notoriously accurate. They fact check like crazy. That's their reputation. And if we tell this reporter that he needs to spend a minimum of six weeks before he writes the article, getting to know the people on the Hill. And the, peop the article has to be about the Hill, not about the artists, Nick and Gabrielle. It has to be about the Hill. We can be part of it because we're part of the Hill. Maybe that would work. And he totally agreed to that. Right. And then we went and asked all the residents if they wanted to have the New Yorker do an article. Yes. And, you know, the reporter's name was Jim Lardner, James Lardner, and he is the grandson of Ring Lardner. And he also used to be a cop. That was interesting. Which right. made it very interesting. He was formerly, before he became a, a reporter and then a social activist, uh, he was a cop. You know, so that the combination of all of that, it just seemed like a good idea, a good way of controlling the narrative versus a quickie human interest story on the six o'clock news, you know? So we told Jim that we needed to check with the people on the Hill because it's not up to us to give you access to them. Um, and then we'll get back to you. And they said, yeah, fine. You know, right. we talked to everybody on the Hill and they said, sure. And then Jim almost immediately started hanging out up there. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And he spent six weeks. In fact, he spent six months. Right. So he was up there a long time. <laughs> he was up there for a long time. He slept up there. And, and this, is, this is an interesting thing for me. There came a point 
where Jim, his, his editor was totally excited about this piece and wanted him to finally write it. But there came a point where Jim suddenly didn't know anymore what he was supposed to write, what this article, what interested him. And the same thing happened to a, a previous reporter who also came back to the Hill, by the way, and the people on the Hill knew him. He had spent months before, the year before we got there, and never ended up doing an article. And kind of the same thing was happening to Jim. And I gave it some thought at the time. And I thought I would read just my my excerpt from the journal because it might interest you to know what our formulation of the homeless was. Because we've been saying all along, and we told the borough president's office, and we told anybody who wanted to listen, we're not homeless advocates. We're not homeless experts. We have no opinion on this. We're artists, right? But it got me thinking why people end up not knowing what, the, what to write about anymore once they get to know the people. And the exoticism wears off. So I said, all I know is what was happening to me. People always ask me now what I would do to solve the homeless problem. Okay, here are some thoughts. Although the picture is so complicated, so layered and confounding that it's difficult even to find a commonly agreed upon set of assumptions from which to depart. First, there's the word homeless itself. Over time, it has become a catch-all plural noun because the sheer rise in incidence precludes specifying what kind of homeless. But exactly there's the rub. It's impossible to generalize. Which leads to the second problem, our society's annoying need to dichotomize everything. So if people aren't victims, they must be perpetrators. If they're not heroes, they must be villains. Consequently, you get advocates and detractors, both trying to mold public relations images to market, that the actual people don't fit. Another thought, if I take an abandoned child, how or even if I take in an abandoned child, how or even whether I can help that child depends on many factors on both of our sides. Age, background, physical, mental health, finances, etc. It depends on all the individuals involved. Then say, I'm forced to take in another child and another and another. Soon, I only have one big problem that also has only one solution, namely, stem the tide of abandoned children. (laughs) You know, as a family slash society living with each other, admit to having neglected part of our house and commit to solving it. Forget about assigning blame, shit happens, fix it, everything else is a band-aid. Of course, I'm self-deluded, egocentric, if I'm self-deluded, egocentric, abusive, too busy, and a general moron, then the abandoned kid isn't the only problem at hand. I am too then, right? At this point, whose problem is bigger and in greater need of fixing? Mine or the kids? Who can help whom? 
Many people consider the answer a priori and obvious. I doubt it. Okay, that's the end of my quote. So I did, I did give the whole notion of homelessness because everybody, you know, with good reason, was asked, would, be, would ask us all the time, right. well, what's your solution? What would you do, right? Yeah, because they'd come up to talk to us because we were in the teepee. Sure. And, you know, the, the thing is, all kinds of film producers, I think it was the Christmas right before um, we did the ceremony for the uh, centennial. Yes, the Christmas before. The, the, the 29th was the actual 100th anniversary of the Wounded Knee Massacre. Right. And we did a ceremony that day to commemorate. Right. But that Christmas, uh, a film crew came up with food for like 30 people yeah. and they wanted to use the teepee inside their film or they that wasn't going to happen but food was there so that was nice they brought it up i don't even know what movie it was more movies came up over and over they came up there Constantly filmmakers filmmakers right uh and as we had mentioned before um law and order chris noth came up who i went to school with yeah, lots of lots of films in particular, many, many, many photographers, all kinds of people, architects. Just there was a whole parade of people uh, always coming yeah, up to the and, hill. Yeah, and from all kinds of news outlets, CNN, AP, they yes. were all coming up and people were chasing them away. Yes. Especially the, the lone photographer or camera person. Right. They would throw rocks at them. Right, because they had no interest in engaging they wanted a hit and run job. Right. But back to the timeline, yes, uh, a couple days after Christmas, uh, a film crew fed, you know, 30 people, whatever, uh, food for 30 people. Then a woman from a radio station stopped by on December 28th. Um, she eventually came back but didn't end up doing anything. But she did talk to the two Billies, Billy Toyota and brother Billy. Then... An AP reporter came by, and Nick gave him a little bit. Uh, you felt like it was maybe not enough for a story, but she came back the next day for more and also to take pictures. Uh, you know, we, we, we were constantly trying to control the narrative. Right. And I mean, at a certain point, really, everybody was being chased away. Every photographer that came by. Yeah, except individually. I, you know, I just remembered, uh, on, uh, in late January, a Newsday reporter came by, and she was such a jerk. She bullied her way in, into to the teepee. Suddenly, she was in there, and I didn't even, before I even knew what happened. How'd uh, she get in? She just walked in? She just walked in, and Ali, Ali accompanied her. Oh, I see, yeah. You know? Yeah, I remember now. Ali wanted... Uh, his story. Yeah. Yeah. Ali was really happy in some ways to talk to her because it turned out she was from Detroit and um, apparently Ali at some point lived in Detroit. So this is where I got the information when I talked about Ali that he used to run a grocery store in Coney Island. And he told this reporter that he had a girlfriend who got hooked on drugs and that things went south from there. In any case, he was giving her all kinds of information, which kind of let me off the hook. And I then also got beeped. And it turned out that Wilbur Ross was calling me in early. Uh, and so I was happy to leave Ali in the teepee. I said, when you're done, lock up. <laughs> <laughs> lock up. <laughs> yeah, lock up in quotes. But 
Right. You you can finish this with this reporter. You want to talk to her? You go ahead and talk to her. Right. You know. So we were trying to get a collective kind of situation where everybody would agree about how we're going to let people come in. They had agreed Jim. Jim was going to do the story. Yes. He was taking a long time doing it. And he was trying it. to make appointments with people. I remember that, yeah. which was really funny because he would show up at his appointed time. And of course, nobody, nobody, you know, you, you either catch them or you don't. There's no, there was no making appointments right. with people. Right. So, um, <laughs> so, but Jim was going to do the story. Yeah. So every other story was sort of irrelevant to making a representation of the Hill. Yes. So I just want to talk uh, finish the story about what happened with the New Yorker uh, because I'm jumping ahead in time there before we go back, backwards again. So the the story came out in June of 91 and it was incredible because the people really were represented the way they wanted to be represented. Eventually Jim got interviews with everybody and then after that a fact checker came and it took forever to fact check because they're very precise about their fact checking and they wanted to make sure they got a hold of all the people and that they weren't say drunk when they were fact checking and people were able to amend their story like ace once left the hill to live with his sister in philadelphia we said a big long goodbye and he ended up coming oh, back. i gave him a ride down there. you gave him a ride i down was headed there. to washington right. dc yeah. and so we we never did find a typewriter for him we wanted a typewriter i remember very ceremoniously handing him a pen and saying please write um and we thought it was goodbye forever but then he got into a scuffle with his brother-in-law and ended up stabbing him and he had told me the story as well, but apparently he told Jim. <laughs> so when the fact checker came around and double checked this with Ace, Ace said, "No, I did not stab right, my brother-in-law." Of course, right. of course, you know. And they took it out, so they got their representation. They got represented the way they wanted to be represented, and it was a great story. So in some case. We felt proud of that. It was mission accomplished. And what was really cool back then, the New Yorker didn't have a lot of photographs. There were no photographs in the New Yorker, only drawings. And there was a drawing of the teepee that was done last minute. And everybody thought that was really cool, not just us. Right. I mean, if you were going to have a representation of the teepee in a shantytown, that'd be it. A pencil drawing would be it, right? Right. Someone's view of it, right? Yeah. A piece of art, exactly. really. Right. So, so we felt very good about that, that very early on we let Jim in, right? So I, I just want to back up, though, now, because um, it was in March that we introduced disposable cameras. Yeah, so that's uh, like, what, four months after we got there? And that was trying to get everybody on the same page about who, who's going to come up and take pictures in there and everything. Yeah. Because... They were throwing rocks. Everybody would throw rocks at a photographer. It was Long before we got there, yeah. like I said. It wasn't just because the teepee came right. up. Right. You know? so, uh, so I came up with the idea. Yes. You know, I was versed in um, Native American um, history. But uh, the thing that stuck with me was the uh, Plains Indians practice of counting coup, they called it, which you showed your bravery by not killing your enemy but getting close to the enemy and touching them. So going back to the Sontag quote where the, the camera is equated with a gun, but not. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I went back then they had disposable cameras uh, I, don't, I, I forget how much they cost I think they cost about ten dollars each and you'd have a, a roll of 24 or whatever film inside uh, 24 shots so I bought disposable cameras and I passed them out to everybody mm-hmm. with the idea that you know instead of throwing rocks at people sneak up to the people taking the photograph go out the back and come up and sneak up behind them and if they're still there even if they're not there walk up to them and take their picture right and then ace perfected that method as well because instead of only walking up to the people taking pictures and taking their pictures he then confronted them and said hello and they would turn mm. around real quick and look into his camera and there would be all these pictures of shocked and scared people scared people <laughs> yeah from somebody taking their photograph and right. then we got those pictures developed and i i hate even no, saying this no no i mean this is a whole thing i mean you know we're we're kids basically uh, growing up in america and we're watching cowboys and indians our whole life so this we'll get into more of this because uh, uh, one episode we'll talk about when the uh, American Indian movement came up and visited. The and TV. at that point, we'll get into whether this project could be done today. No, it couldn't. It couldn't. No, is the short answer. Well, it however, could, it could be done by Native Americans, probably. Sure, right. <laughs> but we couldn't do a project now called right. Counting Coup, <laughs> right? Where we then took these photographs and sewed them into pieces of leather and fur and mm. made like bandaneros and other things out of them and hung them on the pole that held the door flap in front of the teepee. And we deliberately let them hang there through wind and weather with the notion that as they deteriorate, they release power. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's from another uh, tribe in the yeah. southwest who used to put uh, effigies out and let them wear down. Or even a, a sand painting. I was going to say a sand painting as which well. Which it, its right. power is uh, released when the, when the wind blows. You it don't out. try to preserve a sand painting. No. Um, so they're not meant to be preserved, but to wear and protect. And protect. Protect from other photographs. Right. Coming. And see, right. the people on the hill really, really loved all this stuff, too, because... It made them, first of all, there were a lot of artistic souls on the hill, like Ace, that understood what it was that we were trying to do. Well, everybody has an artistic soul. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. And I mean, that's why everybody was into it. Except, you know, there were a couple cynical ones. I'm talking about self-aware artistic souls. Everybody is an artistic soul, yeah. Okay, I'm talking about self-aware artistic souls. Well, I don't know don't what that under- means. It means that Ace was a writer at heart, and he knew he was a writer. And he wanted to wear all these artifacts when we went, and we'll get to that, to replace right. that photographer's book. Yeah. He was a performer. Yeah, okay. And a writer and all a right. poet. He had poetry published in prison. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. All right, all right, all right. I mean, it's other people like doing it too, <laughs> right? What are you getting at? Why are you arguing with me on this? I guess. You know I what? guess. I guess. I guess. I'm. I'm. 
I'm annoyed that I'm called an artist and I have some special talent or something like that that doesn't if that doesn't that everybody else doesn't have. Okay, but you're the one who came up with this photo project, okay? No, we're we're not special and yes we are special because we're trained. We spent our life studying and, okay, and all right. In, in my ca- you got a GI Bill, but in my case, I spent a lot of money studying art. Okay, right now I'm just <laughs> thinking of my mentors up there who people wouldn't consider an artist, which would be Mr. Lee and the, and the that. Geomancer. We know so, that. you know, I get a little angry when people try to differentiate and put, especially artists, I know, but please put themselves on a, uh, a higher uh, uh, level. Please don't try to nail me. Okay. I'm not trying yes, to nail you. Yes, that's exactly what you're doing. I'm not trying to you nail know, you. No, it's exactly what you're saying. I'm nailing society that puts artists up on a, a, a high little uh But the reason bazooka. we're on this tangent right now is because I said something about people being artists, okay? And, yeah, and you, you, you want to turn me into the enemy. Please don't do that. I'm not turning you Especially into the enemy. Especially not on this podcast. No, I'm not turning you into the <laughs> yes, enemy. Yes, you are. Okay. You, 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 you used to do that a lot, as a matter of fact, uh, on the Hill. Okay, let's get to And that gets to into it. a whole other story when Cindy Carr came Well, up. oh, you're okay. going to do That's not a time for this no, story. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. We skip forward. But these arguments, and this is part of the reason why we didn't want to rehash this. It was a very volatile time. And it's like, it's, you know, a, a, a lot of but, the, the stuff that came up then is coming up now. Well, let's talk about an artist, okay? okay. Uh, an artist who takes a picture of the Hill. Yes. Incognito, hidden. Yes. So nobody knew he was there. Yes. And he takes a picture. He makes a print out of it and puts it in a gallery. He's an artist because he does that. Yes. Right? Are you saying he's an artist? Do not no. make me into uh, no. the enemy. No, I'm, 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 I'm still is... talking. I'm still talking. I'm still talking about who's an artist. And so we could say, okay. Why? Why are you even talking about who's an artist? Can we just stick uh, to I'm the no. facts, Jack? Just no, the facts, man. Can you just can just I, the facts. Can, I? I'd like to finish my thought on this, right? So he doesn't get a special uh, pass because he's he's quoted the artist, and he can take this photograph, and everybody else uh, gets rocks thrown at him or gets comes comes up and gets their picture taken, and their vulnerability right. Exposed. Okay. So now, do you want to talk about what I'm what going we to did? talk about him? Because oh, okay. right, because he's not as an artist, he doesn't get special treatment, right? So this artist took the picture. He we found out it was in a gallery, and um, we don't have to mention the gallery or the artist, I don't think, but it was on display there. So we went to the gallery. Um, this was planned with the people up on the hill. Yes, we figured out that. It was on, that picture was on sale for four hundred dollars. Picture of the teepee in wintertime with snow. Yeah, regardless it. of the price or anything. But I talked to the artist on the hill, all of them, Ivan in particular, who was building a the rose th- hut with right. you. That's what I'm talking. The artist. They're all artists up there, and yes, they all Nick. think. Okay, please. And they yes. all think like artists, right? Yes. Not all of them represent themselves. None of them represent themselves as artists except Ace. Okay? So I, I think that was my point. So we went down there, uh, Ivan and me, I think, 
uh, went down there. Was was somebody else? You weren't there. Yeah, no, there was a, another woman filmmaker who was all gung-ho. Her name was Sarah. She was all gung-ho about all of this. And she even was going to get an appointment with the photographer to interview him. But he was going out of town, so it was going to have to be postponed till August. And then she went to L.A. and never came back. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, that photograph we th- said that we found that had blown up on my feet, which we thought was so... Magical. Magical. Right. We had that photograph blown up in black and white. It was a color photograph, but we had it blown up in black and white to the same size as the print that was on display and in the gallery. And do you know who? It was another press, another publication who did that for us. The Workers' Vanguard. It was a communist paper. And they worked with us, and they're the ones who made a little larger than 8 by 10 by 11, 12 14 or something, or something. Yeah. whatever it was about the size of this photographer's print of the hill uh, okay we're getting sorry convoluted so in any case the photographer took the picture of the hill from basically the entrance stop sign up the hill the picture of the hill that blew up on Nick's feet was from the top of the bridge down so it would have been the perspective of somebody looking down at him. In other words, yes. somebody taking a photograph of where he was taking a photograph. Of, of the hill with no shanties, no teepee, with nothing on it except some bushes and trees. So the idea was to go there and do the switcheroo. Yes. Which we did. Yes. Ivan watched out. Ivan or, was going to play chicky, as he well, said. That's well, when I learned that term. <laughs> yeah, but he was basically talking to the gallery person on duty. Yes. And, uh, and I went in and switched it and took the photograph out and put the other one in. Now, the idea was, I guess, maybe to have a conversation with the artist. <laughs> yes, but wait. No. You're I'm not telling not, the whole story about the, the, the pane of glass. Okay, so it didn't close all the way. You're right. <laughs> and it was squeaking. Yeah, when so you I had, opened when you opened the pane of glass that was in front of the uh, cabinet that held the photograph, it was squeaking, and Ivan jumped to the rescue and distracted the person in charge there at the time, because Ivan heard it squeak, and then Nick closed it, but he didn't get to close it all the way. It was open about three inches. Well, it's only relevant in the sense that I thought it would be caught. Yes. But it never was. No. It no. stayed up Days the whole- later, we went there, and it was still there, and the, the glass pane was still open three inches. Right. <laughs> I might have closed it at one point. But I know the, the point is that yeah. the fake print stayed up there the whole time. So when the artist would have went and... Taken down his exhibit and looked through his photograph. He would have seen that and been confused. Yes. But maybe not so confused because he knows what should be there and what's there instead. And he'd look at that photograph like I first looked at it and say, oh, my God. What is this? What is this? And who did this? And who did it? And who took this picture? And who knew about my photograph and this exhibit? The same thing I didn't know when it blew up on my feet. Exactly. The problem is that we were never able to talk to the photographer afterwards. And he wouldn't have known. He couldn't have suspected it was us. Right. So, you know, you're not going to jump to that conclusion. So, sadly, we never got his reaction. Right. And uh, I don't know when he died, but, but he, that he was the, passed away. I guess, the ultimate counting coup. 
yes. in other words. That was and the ultimate It was so funny because I brought the I brought it back up to the hill and remember Larry? What Larry it was funny oh, because he was hilarious. You know, there's there's so many other great stories about Larry, which is why we feel extra extra guilty for just making him out to be a pimp you know uh first of all larry gave nick a shell ring to give to me but he gave it to nick because he wanted to ask nick first if it was okay and he said that we both were such an inspiration to him for having been together for so long and that all he wants to do is find a woman as soon as he changes his ways, ways and have a relationship like Nick and me. And the other hilarious thing is he took this stolen photograph, which was in white matting, because a lot of the people on the Hill, like Larry, looked at it not as poetic terrorism, they looked at it as an art heist. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Larry put it on a hanger with clamps, and then he put a kid's uh, flannel shirt over that, and then dry cleaning plastic over that. He was thinking, this is the way to carry a valuable piece of art off the hill without getting noticed, you know? And I'm like, Larry... How many people on the hill get their kids' flannel shirts dry cleaned? <laughs> right. <laughs> but he was so funny. He said, ah, oh, I got so many ideas. People are so lucky I'm not a professional thief. <laughs> he <laughs> right. said to me. <laughs> right. So I think, I mean, we were still counting coup at that point, you know. Yes, and everybody... that went on for a long time. Right, right. Uh, and, and hanging the pictures up on the... Uh, the prints up on the uh, pole outside the teepee. Yes, and this was one way, another way of controlling representation and controlling who gets to do what with you. And it's a better solution than throwing rocks. It's a more creative solution that was more fun for well, everybody, yeah, it's, right? Yeah, it's interactive. It's it interactive. Um, I at one level. I think it's a war at another it's level. It's a war at another level. Right. And we'll, we'll get into uh, the, the rest of it because right. there's much more to tell, but I think we should save that for the next episode. Yeah, we're still on the media, but we haven't really spoken to that point where it's switched now. Right. And everything. But you can get a sense of how the media was its own kind of war coming in. Yes. And adding... The next element to that war really confused things because, um, well, we'll talk about yeah. it next episode. Okay. So thank you for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. And if you like what you hear, please do subscribe and like and hit that bell so you know when our next episode is coming out. Yeah, check out our website at thievestheater.org and follow us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I on the Hill. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye.